Welcome to the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo. We bring together the latest research in linguistics, language acquisition, and biblical studies to better understand the biblical languages and ultimately the biblical text. As always, this episode is brought to you by Biblingo, the premier solution for learning, maintaining, and enjoying the biblical languages. Visit biblingo.org to learn more and start your 10-day free trial. I am Kevin Grosso, your host for this episode, and I'm excited to talk with Dr. John Collins today about law or Torah in Paul. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. So just a little bit about um, Dr. Collins. He is a native of Ireland, and he was a professor of Hebrew Bible at the University of Chicago from 1991 until his arrival at Yale Divinity School in 2000. He previously, previously taught at the University of Notre Dame, and he has published widely on the subjects of apocalypticism, wisdom, Hellenistic Judaism, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he has numerous scholarly accolades that would take far too long to enumerate. So today, we will primarily be discussing his book, The Invention of Judaism, Torah and Jewish Identity from Deuteronomy to Paul. So I personally am very excited to have this conversation because I, um, in my own work, I'm actually working on Torah in the Messianic era, um, and it is... I incredible just how many fields you have written about that are related to everything in Second Temple Judaism, but especially this kind of topic. Um, so, and I found your book very helpful. So, can you just explain for us, um, to start with, what are you trying to do in this book? Okay, what, uh, what got me going on this book was about, oh, maybe 12 years ago, I wrote an article on the rise of Torah. And uh, this was because it had struck me that the Torah wasn't always as central as we generally take it to be. And so my question was really, when did this happen? Now, um, you know, at the, at the, the core insight, I suppose, that I, I developed is that really the centrality of Torah is a Hasmonean phenomenon. It's something that happens in the wake of the Maccabean revolt. Now, I think, I do believe that there's a historical core to the story of Ezra bringing the Torah back from Babylon. Uh, I would argue that the Torah he had wasn't quite what, uh, what we have. There are at least a few points of difference. And also, but more importantly, it didn't immediately take now, even if you give maximum historical credence to the book of Ezra, and not everybody does, uh, but even if you do, uh, it's a case of a reformer coming in, imposing something, at least in the area of Jerusalem, with great gusto, and then he disappears. And the little we know of what we're done in Jerusalem in the time between Ezra and the Maccabean Revolt, would not lead you to think that they were observing a Torah at all. You know, you have high priests doing all sorts of things that they shouldn't be doing, uh, you know, intermarrying with the Samaritans, uh, not to mention the shenanigans then that lead up 
to the Maccabean Revolt. But then with the Maccabean Revolt, I think things change. Uh, this, you know, the battle cry according to First Maccabees was, anyone who is zealous for the law, come out with me. Now, the Maccabees weren't really all that zealous for the law. In detail, they were quite willing to make exceptions to it. But it was the slogan. And, you know, as we know, in this country at the moment, slogans are very powerful, regardless of whether people actually live by them or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many cases, it's what you say you're doing more than what you're doing. It <laughs> seems to have the effect. But so they, the Hasmoneans weren't especially pious people, as far as we can tell. Uh, but they do seem to have, you know, favored certain external Jewish observances, if I may put it that way. And I don't mean uh, by saying external uh, to be derogatory about them, but I mean observable. Things that you could see whether people were doing them or not. That means keeping the festivals, keeping the Sabbath. Now, a lot of this, I think, was a reaction against what Antiochus Epiphanes had tried to do. And my understanding of what had gone on there is that, uh, you know, his interest initially was just in raising more money. And he just wanted a high priest who would be cooperative in that regard. But then while he was in Egypt, fighting broke out between Jason and Menelaus. So between his latest appointee and the previous appointee. And he took it to be a revolt against his authority. And what he tried to do, I think, then, was suppress the distinctive identity of, the, of Judea. And you know, Elias Bickerman, the great historian of nearly 100 years ago, uh, made the point that one of the things the Hellenistic kings typically did was give people the right to live by their ancestral laws. And that's what the Maccabees were fighting for was the right to live by their ancestral law, which they then identified, at least grosso modo, with the Torah. Mm. So I think that's why the Torah suddenly became enormously important and of of definitional importance, you might say. And it's after that, then, that you begin to get these step pools, which I'm sure you have explored at some length up in Galilee. Uh, there is a book coming out next month by Jonathan Adler. I don't know if you know the man, young archaeologist uh, in Israel. And um, uh, he, it's uh, in many ways like an archaeological companion to my book. He's more skeptical about Ezra than I am. But we both agree that it's only after the Maccabean Revolt that you get evidence for uh, you know, exact interpretation of the law, the, the attempt to follow the law uh, very particularly. Before well, that, in a book like Ben Sira, you know, uh, all wisdom is the, the Torah, the book of the Torah. But, you know, it's wisdom is the way he treats it. He's not treating it as law. He's not worrying about the details of purity like they are after that. So you know, that's the, the platform, if you like, of my, my, uh, my book. Uh, then I spend a few chapters on 
lingering non-mosaic Judaism. And I did get some pushback on this, as one might expect. But I think most of the Enoch literature, it's not that they don't know the law of Moses. Before the Maccabean revolt, uh, things like Kohelet. Again, I think Kohelet knew the book of Genesis, but he isn't citing Torah. Right. Neither is Ben Sirah, really. Uh, You have stories from the diaspora, even Daniel chapters one to six. You know, you would never infer from those stories that they had such a thing as the Torah. So there was variety that people who wrote the Enoch book seemed to attach more importance to Enoch than they did to Moses. And then in the diaspora, which I'm sure we'll get to, uh, they had a different way of reading it, even when they accepted it as the law. So I think, you know, what Ezra did was important because it nominally elevated the Torah of Moses as the, the standard for what it meant to be a Judean. But it didn't lead to any exact interpretation of it, and there was that, that there was a wide range of different ways that people could use that and interpret it. Yeah, and that's so that's really helpful. And I even think about the term itself, right? Even in used, you know, within the Hebrew Bible, is is just instruction. It's not, you know, Torah. You know, it's like, and 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 it's hard for us. I think, you know, just as um, English speakers today, when we think of the word. Torah. It's just first five books. Oh, that's what it is, you know. And but that's just not. That's just not what they thought, right? Um, and be and the word itself is just, it's just instruction, right? Just instruction. Yeah. And yeah. and and but it's a problem, right? Um, because of how we then retroject our views, right? Onto the with which is always the problem, right? Um, but but so this is one of the reasons why I wanted to you know, have you talk about this, right, is because you are coming at this not as a Pauline scholar, primarily, right, although you've dabbled in, you know, these kinds of things. And so, and that is actually the the last chapter in your book. And I, I actually, when I, when I was reading through your book, I was very surprised that you had written the last chapter on Paul and very excited because I was like, oh, he doesn't really normally do this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love, I would love to hear his thoughts on this. Um, so, in, so in tell me. That- that chapter oh, is an epilogue, you know, <laughs> uh, and I had agonized for a long time whether to write it. But then enough people, you know, if I gave it quite a number of talks based on this as I was writing it, and people would quite regularly ask, what about Paul? <laughs> then, of course, when I did it, people would ask, what about Matthew? And I, I had no intention of becoming a New Testament scholar to finish this thing. But so I, I did apply myself to Paul for a month or so. <laughs> but as I said, this doesn't make me a Pauline scholar, and I don't have any illusions in that regard. But, but I, you know, this that is really why the perspective is valuable because you're not right in in entrenched in this discussion, right? Um, and and so so can you? You know, again, I know, you know, we, we've talked about this, right, just offline, um, that there are a lot of different, um, you know, perspectives and a lot of different summaries of the different perspectives. But can you just give us from your perspective the an overview of 
um, what people are saying about Paul and Torah for those that aren't, you know, up to date on, especially, so, you know, there's traditional Protestant, new perspective, and then the Paulatine Judaism school really is like a newer thing in the, in terms of scholarship. So what, what are those three main camps saying about Paul and Torah? Okay, here's a highly oversimplified <laughs> sketch of each. And I'm sure, you know, if you get on somebody from the Paul and Judaism school, he'll say, this isn't what we're saying at all. But, but be that as it may. But the traditional thing is, uh, Jews were laboring under the burden of the law. And according to Paul, Christ freed us from this burden. And Jews were trying to earn their salvation by works righteousness. And it gives a rather depressing view of Judaism, it would have to be said. Now, the person I think who first challenged that, to my knowledge, was Christopher Stendhal, uh, who was not one of my main teachers at Harvard, but he was there and uh, an influential person at the time. And he pointed out that Paul actually doesn't say that the law is a burden uh, and he said that Paul had a robust conscience in this. It wasn't that he couldn't keep the law. Then Ed Sanders came along with his, what became known later on as the new perspective. But the, the heart of what Sanders was saying is that they weren't trying to earn salvation by keeping the law. Uh, it was a matter that salvation comes with a covenant, which is a gracious gift of God. And that keeping the law is maintenance. It's maintaining your standing within the law. And that, I think, has been pretty widely accepted. You don't get people nowadays, openly at least, I think, talking about the burden of the law or Jews earning salvation. But then uh, you're left with the question of why was Paul so upset about the works of the law. And why was he so negative on the works of the law? And uh, Jimmy Dunn, another person associated with the new perspective, came along and said, oh, it was really Jewish nationalism. It was the, the, the distinctive markers of Jewish ethnicity. And I, you know, I don't think that's quite right. We'll come back to that probably. I think Tom Wright is something vaguely similar to that. Um, but I think where they are right is that Paul didn't reject the law completely. You know, if you, you're reading in the, in 1 Corinthians, you suddenly find that, well, no, what? He gives you a list of, uh, of vices. <laughs> uh, no arsenicoites, <laughs> no, no uh, adulterer, no whatever, uh, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. And if that's not keeping the law, uh, I mean, it looks an awful lot like it. Uh, actually, you know, Paul expected people to keep most of the law. What he felt, what he said, and again, this I think is one increasing uh, acceptance is that Gentiles don't need to keep what we would call the ritual law. Things like circumcision, um, maybe kashrut, this kind of thing. Uh, so you know, that then it's, it becomes more a matter of a contrast of two approaches to the law. 
But then uh, the Paul within Judaism people come along and take that further. Now, of course, one of the driving impulses of the new perspective, and a huge factor uh, in Christian theology in the last 70 years or so, is guilt after the Holocaust. And I think this is actually a good thing. <laughs> Christians uh, were overdue to develop some guilt <laughs> about their condemnations of, of Judaism over the centuries. Uh, I think some people perhaps uh, went a little bit overboard with it. Now, what I would see is the root of Paul within Judaism approach is that the two-way uh, theory of John Gager and Lloyd Gaston, you know, who said there's one way for Jews and there's one way for Gentiles. Now, I don't think that holds up. So two-way specifically for justification or salvation, right? Yes, I mean, two ways to salvation. Right. If you like. In other words, uh, Jews should just go on doing what they're doing. They're fine. Uh, Gentiles, on the other hand, uh, don't need to do all that. Well, uh, we'd probably want to come back and talk a little more about that. Uh, but that, then uh, uh, as a further step on top of that, you have people like Matthew Thiessen, supported by Christine Hayes, um, who, who uh, say that actually Paul... Uh, just it's because Paul was so attached to the law. Paul had such a high regard for the law that he didn't want Gentiles trying to keep it. And that one, I think, is really gone off the deep end at that point. But again, we'll probably want to come back to talk. Yeah, so we 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 will definitely want to talk about the the deep end. So so let's start out by you you describe Paul as um, you say, accepting the basic premises of apocalypticism. And so this is obviously a you know, huge thing you've worked on and something that's very controversial within New Testament studies, even in just how to understand the word apocalyptic, right? So what do you mean by that? And, and how does that, why does that matter for how we understand Paul's understanding of Torah or does it? Uh, well, it, it, it does matter because I think there was a huge shift in worldview, not in completely due to apocalypticism, but apocalypticism was part of it, from, the, from ancient Israel to the Hellenistic period. Comparable, I would say, you know, to the, the shift between the Middle Ages and the rise of modern science. And part of that shift was the idea that there is a judgment after death. And if you read Deuteronomy, salvation means you live long in the land, your crops grow, your animals thrive, and you get to see your children's children. Fine. Now, by the time you get to the apocalyptic literature, beginning with Daniel and Enoch in the early second century BCE, then salvation means having eternal life in, the, in heaven with the angels. Completely different ballgame. And, you know, for people who actually believe it, and there are a lot of people who profess it but don't, 
actually believe it. <laughs> but for people who actually believe it, that completely changes your outlook on life. Now, Paul took that for granted, I would say. Uh, probably the, the, uh, the big question in New Testament studies is whether Jesus also took it for granted, but we won't go there today. We've got enough. Uh, but but uh, Paul certainly did. Now, there are two things in particular. First of all, he believed he had a higher revelation. Now, even for people who fully accepted the law, like the teacher of righteousness in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, he still thought he had a higher revelation that told him what it really meant. And it's that higher revelation that's crucial. In 4th Ezra, an apocalypse at the end of the first century of the Common Era, uh, Ezra is, is give, given the task of restoring the law, but he's actually given 90 books, 94 books. And it's the ones that are not made public that have the real gems of wisdom. That's the higher revelation. Now, Paul also thought he had a higher revelation. We don't like to use the word supersede, supersessionism, but it does. <laughs> <laughs> There's no good way around it. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean that what you supersede has lost all value, but it means you've got something more. That's part of it. The other thing is that well, probably the, the main form of apocalypticism in Judea, at least at that time, is what I would call historical apocalypticism, where you, it's the idea that history has a defined course to it, and it is now coming to an end. And Paul is very explicit about that, especially in 1 Corinthians. He says, I mean, brethren, may we say brethren, uh, but uh, I mean, this world is passing away. You know, those who have wives should be like those who have not, uh, and so forth. Doesn't matter if you're a slave. This world is passing away. Now, whether this was a good thing to believe or not, we could talk about, uh, but uh, St. Paul most certainly believed it. Now, that is going to put him in a quite different camp from the Sadducees, for example, who apparently did not believe in a resurrection. And, and probably didn't believe that this world was passing away. So that's what I mean by saying that Paul has uh, an apocalyptic view. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, he's not particularly like a lot of the other apocalyptic writings, because the other thing where Paul is coming from is he is a diaspora Jew. And that means... You know, he, Greek was his language. Uh, he had a smattering, at least, of Greek rhetoric and Greek philosophy. He was no Philo of Alexandria, but he was familiar with that. You know, you don't find Paul talking about one like a son of man or a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, which would be a Semitic idiom. That's not his idiom. So he's coming from a Greek world, really, or a Hellenized world. And that has a huge impact, I think, on his view of the law. Because uh, in the diaspora, if you go through all the Jewish literature written in Greek, and there is a lot of it, 
Now, the Torah is important. I think the Torah, you know, one of the first Jewish writings in Greek was the Torah translated into Greek. So they knew the Torah. But when they summarize the law, they talk about it in very general terms, what we might call the moral law. They have a few particular hang-ups, shall we say, some of which might endear them to modern conservatives. You know, they are very much against same-sex relations, and they are very much against exposing children. Uh, Abortion doesn't seem to have been that much of an issue at the time, but exposing children was a huge issue. So there are a couple of things like that. But what you do not typically get them talking about is the food laws, the Sabbath, circumcision. You will sometimes find that they do talk about them. The letter of Aristeus, for example, talks about them. That came to mind. (laughs) But but it proceeds to give you an allegorical interpretation. Right. Say, you know, Moses wasn't really concerned about pigs. (laughs) It's what they stand for. And your animals that you the cud, these symbols of memory, uh, whatever. But, you know, that the, the, they are not uh, advocating those laws simply because they are laws. They always have to have a spiritual meaning. And I think Paul was also part of that world. And I think that also has a big uh, part to play in his attitude to the, the law. So do you feel like then, um, you know, to draw a distinction between, say, Torah as like ethical wisdom versus law? I mean, so, I mean, I think, and, and people people have drawn this distinction even within ancient Near Eastern studies, right? And said, well, really, the law originally, the, you know, mosaic law was more like wisdom and less like yeah. statutory law. And, and so do you think that diaspora Jews in general viewed it more like that? And, you know, can we make that distinction between Palestinian Jews and Hellenistic Jews, you know? And, and and in that same vein, then, the Hellenistic Jews would really be viewing it more as its original intent, right? Um, as sort of wisdom. Possibly, but I, I think, you know, uh, that there's room for a number of different uh, understandings of it. Uh, sure. But you're calling the original intent. Uh, I don't know if there's a book by Bernard Jackson, Wisdom Laws. And... But this has become kind of common wisdom in the last couple of decades that, you know, in we have a lot of legal proceedings from the ancient Near East. They do not typically cite laws. You know, practical law was in the head of the judge. Ultimately, the king was the law. Now, so what was the point of, of Hammurabi writing up his laws? Well, you know, they were illustrative. And one imagines that a judge in Mesopotamia would be expected to be familiar with precedents, but not actually bound by them. So it was wisdom in that sense. Now, uh, I don't think that's quite what's going on, you know, that in the Hellenistic world, uh, but they do have 
to some degree it was. And that there is a whole debate as to how far, say, Jews in Egypt actually lived by the law of Moses. And I think the main consensus is that the law of the land was law. So, you know, even in matters of marriage, we have one exception that I can remember where we in a papyrus, where we know of somebody marrying in accordance with the law of Moses. But most of the time, you follow the local custom on those things. Now, so what value was the the law of Moses? It was like a wisdom book. You know, it was something that should inform you. Uh, Philo, for example, will talk about all the law being summed up under. It's essentially love of God and love of your neighbor. That's what, what it always comes back to in one way or another. And I think one of the the questions you had said, you know, is what did Paul mean by the law of Christ? And I think that's more or less what he meant by it. He never says as far as I know. But I don't think Paul thought for a moment that you could live without having some law, (laughs) you know, without following some law. But I think that the law of Christ for him was the, the things that mattered. That he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and it's it's what uh, is the spiritual understanding of it that matters. It's not going through all the motions and whether you um, you know get your foreskin cut off. Right, and so that is, I mean, I think you know, a very different perspective than than people like you know, the Qumranites, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, who are very particular about the particulars, right? So, so how then, well, let, let, let's back up. So, so if, if we, if we think about Jews in the first century, right, you said that there are some that are going to um, just have varying views of Torah in general, right? So, you you actually cite First Corinthians nine, right? And you say Paul did not consider himself bound by the law of Moses, except insofar as it overlapped with the law of Christ. So, if if Paul is Jewish, because this is how people have defined Judaism, right? Right. And this, this is your part of your point, right? That people have defined Judaism as being bound to the law of Moses. So, it, then in your view, if that's not essential, right? Um, what does it mean for Paul to be Jewish, right, and not bound by the law of Moses? Does that make sense? Well, uh, it does. It makes sense in light of the common assumptions about it. But you know, what does it mean? I assume you consider yourself an American. Yes. What does that mean? It's a dangerous question. You might tell me more than I mean. I, 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 I mean, to, to use the... Uh, you know, very simple answer, being yeah. born in America, right, yeah. makes me an American. Us being Having a legal citizenship, right, would make me yes. American. And, and uh, in, in antiquity, at least, and in fact, down to modern times, I think it's still the case, having a Jewish mother made you a Jew. Now, uh, some people... There are a lot of people who think that to be an American, you need a lot more than that. Right. 
you need to have an attachment to guns and God knows what. <laughs> There's a whole ethos that they think is implied by it. Right. Uh, certainly freedom with a capital. Right. Now, you know, in, in ancient Judaism, that there's that lovely story about the royal house of Ediabene, you know, where the, the royal house wanted to convert. And uh, it was okay for the queen, but for her son, this would mean circumcision. And one Jew came along and said, oh, you know, you can serve God without circumcision. That isn't really essential. And another, then a Pharisee came along and said, hell no, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you want to be a Jew, you've got to go through that. Now, so, sure, there were, there were sharp differences of opinion, and they didn't tinge on, on Christianity. There were sharp differences of opinion before that. Uh, no, the, one of my favorite texts for that dignity is 4QMMT. Do all your listeners know what 4QMMT is? You, you should explain it. But uh, it... Well, it's, it's this text that seems to have been sent by a sectarian leader to a ruler in Israel, probably a high priest, although he isn't directly so-called. But what it does is it, it's, it's appealing, really, to king or high priest, to to adjudicate who is right in a religious dispute. And it has one party that's called they, and one party that's called we. And in all cases, they go through, I think it's 22 cases in all, where the most they have to do with purity. And my favorite example is the purity of liquid streams. You know, if you pour water into a cup that's dirty. Does the impurity travel upstream? Now, I would say that whoever wrote that was concerned about the minutiae of the law. I had gone through life happily without ever worrying about that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one of my sons is a scientist, and he heard me give a lecture about it one time, and he came up to me after, and he said, you know, I worry about that every day in the lab. So <laughs> maybe they were on to something, you know. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, you know, this was, this was an attitude to the law. I mean, the, what they say then is we have separated from the majority of the people. I know your teacher, Elit Sur, has a slightly different interpretation of this passage, but I, I'll go with this one anyway for the moment. But it's, we have separated, we just cannot live with people who would go on using a cup from which you had poured water into a dirty cup. Now, these were the kind of issues that led to the separation of the, the sect of the people who lived at Qumran and some other places. Now, that's an attitude to the law that you do not find before the Maccabean revolt. I think it's really only after that that you get that level of obsession with detail. And not all Jews shared it by any means. You know, the uh, great adversaries of the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were the Pharisees. These were the seekers after smooth things, the softies, the compromisers. We don't think that's not how the Pharisees come across in the New Testament. 
because from the perspective of the people in the New Testament, the Pharisees were obsessed with details. But you had a whole spectrum of this. And uh, Paul may have started out, you know, on the right wing of the, the spectrum, but by the time he's writing his epistles, he's moved pretty far to the left. And now, you don't get any literature like that written in Greek. Hmm. We have a lot of texts that deal with the law one way or another. But you never get that kind of obsession with the detailed observation. And of course, this text, it's, it's called MMT, means Mitzat Maaseh HaTorah, some of the works of the law. And, you know, it's been argued, is that what Paul meant by works of the law? And I think it's a possibility. It would be hard to prove, but it's definitely a possibility that that's what he meant. You know, people, that kind of obsession with the detailed observ observance of the law, which is very different from what you'll get in Philo or Pseudophokylides, another great text from the diaspora, uh, where you don't get any of those kind of details, but it's all about love your neighbor. If you find uh, your, your neighbor's donkey going astray, take him back. Um, you know, it's what we would call the moral law. And I think that's what Paul came round to, is that that law holds, that's essential but you don't need the other stuff. And it's interesting because, you know, so so you mentioned the Pharisees as well. I mean, it seems like, you know, the perspective that we find in 4QMMT is actually very similar to, you know, the Mishnah, I think, you know, the, a lot of the rabbinic stuff where it's like, okay, let's take every single law and figure out exactly how to do it, right? And, and, and that, you know, and I mean, I think obviously you see that to a greater degree in later rabbinic literature. Um, but so, so here comes Paul, right? Seeming to argue against that perspective is that I mean that's that's your basic idea, right? And I but so. if he says he's has a Pharisaic background, right? He knows that perspective. If we take that as true, right? He knows, and and it is just from a you know very you know basic psychological how humans work kind of point. It's like we often will argue against you know, prior positions that we had that we know very well, right? Because we see, okay, yes, I was wrong, <laughs> right? And there was something that shifted. The most bitter enemy is the person you were joined with before. Now, I'm raising a commentary on the community rule from Qumran, and Charlotte Hempel, a German woman who teaches in England, uh, just published one. And what, one of the points, one of the things she argues is she thinks that when, when they refer to the uh, men of deceit or the men of injustice or something like that, they're referring to the party from which they split off. Now, I don't actually agree with her on that, but if she were right, it would be a nice illustration of the point you're making. You know, it's the person that is just like you, but different on a few crucial details. Right. Right. So so let's let's 
And now go to, so we, if we have these two perspectives, right, on Torah, right, we have the Hellenistic, you know, Judaism perspective of viewing Torah more as wisdom, ethical wisdom, and that is really summarized in love, right? And then we have the very prescriptive sort of, um, you know, perspective in a lot of Palestinian Judaism. We'll say at least for, you know, people, Qumran, Pharisees. So how, okay, in light of those things, um, and we've said that Paul is more like a Hellenistic Jew, what does the Paul within Judaism school say about it, right? And how do we relate, um, you know, Paul to your your Paul, right? How you read Paul to their Paul, right? Um, how, how they're reading Paul, which kind of camp is Paul in for them? And why does that matter? Well, you know, the, the argument that Matthew Thiessen and Christine Hayes give for, for why Paul thought it was a privilege that the uh, Gentiles were didn't deserve to keep the law. And their prime exhibit for this is the Book of Jubilees. But the Book of Jubilees would have been quite happy to see all the Gentiles go to hell. You know, there is no concern for Gentiles in the Book of Jubilees or in MMT, I might say, you know. The, the people who were concerned with the minute observance of the law like that just didn't have that kind of concern. Now, uh, that you know, there are texts that Christine cites of, from the Talmud, you know, of the, the great privilege of the law. But you don't find texts like that in Paul. And to say that, oh, he didn't want to make, make the Gentiles desire it uh, is a pretty desperate argument, I think. You know, Paul, um, Paul says some pretty harsh things about the law. He also covers his tracks now and then and says the law is holy and just and good. But at the same time, he's very emphatically clear that even though he is a Jew and, you know, did everything right, he has come to realize that uh, you're only justified by faith in Christ, uh, not works of the law. And I don't think for a moment that Paul meant that uh, uh, this only applies to Gentiles. He said, even we who are Jews born of Jews have to realize this. Well, it is, it's interesting because, you know, he, he does actually say the opposite, right? Like, like you, like you point out, he says, so it, it is, it's very hard to know, like, what would he have to say to have that perspective? And when he says we ourselves as Jews, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, cannot I mean, be justified. If, if Paul thought that, uh, that circumcision is only a value if you get it on the eighth day. That's not difficult to say. <laughs> right. You know, you, you don't need to be a master rhetorician to say that. Why would he have kept that a secret and fool people for 2,000 years to come? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there are many of these issues where I would uh, gladly agree that reasonable people can disagree. This isn't one of them. <laughs> I think that the argument, you know, that it was because Paul was so strict 
in his interpretation of the law is sheer nonsense. So Paul then, when he says, you know, when he's arguing against circumcision, is arguing against it because it doesn't, whether you are circumcised or not for Paul, doesn't mean that you are fulfilling the law. Because his perspective then is like a Hellenistic Jew who says to fulfill the law, you need to love. That is that a fair summary? I think I think that is true. I think um, you know. I think he he had no problem with Jews being circumcised. Sure, fine. But he says quite explicitly, neither circumcision nor lack of circumcision really matters in the end. So, getting circumcised doesn't do anything for you. But not only that, but I think he felt that for Gentiles to get circumcised, they'd be putting their faith on the wrong system. Right, right. It was showing that they were buying into something else. Yeah, this may be a little nod now to your interpretation of Pistis Christu. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I I was actually thinking <laughs> that myself. <laughs> yeah. So, so... <laughs> One of the things you mentioned earlier was the apocalyptic, you know, perspective of Paul. And one of the things that is very, um, in some of the apocalyptic literature, you know, we have the Messiah come, right? So how do you think, um, you know, you, you, you say, and, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm doing work on this, but you say that there isn't much evidence for the Torah becoming obsolete, in the Messianic age. And there's actually, I think there's a variety of things that people say will happen once the Messiah comes, right? Or a Messiah comes, right? Um, but, but, and in particular with, you know, Torah, like what, what will happen? Um, and we don't have a lot of evidence for this either way, but I, I do, it is very interesting that there are some texts and you mentioned this, like 1QS 9-11, um, you know, it says, Vezeha mishpatim asher yishpetu bahem, Ad ma'amod Mashiach Aharon Israel. But, so, but Mishpatim in question are the community rules. They're not right. the law of Right, right. So, so the Damascus document. Right, right. So, so you know, what he's saying is you have to contribute in the Damascus document. You have to contribute two days' salary a week. Now, when the Messiah comes, that may be all off. That may not be necessary anymore. But right. I don't think uh, they thought that like the bigger issues of, of the, the Torah of Moses would be suspended. In fact, I I think the people at Qumran probably thought when the Messiah comes, then we will be free to observe the law precisely by our own interpretation. Well, it's interesting that in you know one QSA seems to suggest just that that heightened purity. You know, uh, in after the Messiah's come, there is some sort of difference right in the way that they can follow torah they it is it is not less but more right that's right um but but at the same time there are these rabbinic passages right where and i know obviously you know yeah. when did they come passages, they're, they're, they're late right but 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 i I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the relationship in paul in light of these kinds so one rabbinic passage for example you know, Vaikar in the world to come, all the sacrifices are annulled, but the Thanksgiving sacrifice is not annulled. All the prayers are annulled, 
but the prayer of thanksgiving is not annulled. And, you know, so you have passages like that, you know, another one, a new Torah will go forth for me, and an innovation of the Torah will go forth for me. So do, do we think Paul had any idea that the Messiah, like the new revelation from the Messiah, right? The like, which he, you know, was obviously connecting with his apocalyptic world is, is not necessarily changing Torah, but makes us view it in a different light. I mean, it, you know, in particular, um, well, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. You, you can. Well, yeah. But now what do you think Paul expected to happen? If you had asked Paul, what will be happening a hundred years from now? What do you think Paul would have said? Oh, um, well, you know, wh- whether I think he, he thought that the world would be gone <laughs> there or not. Now, yeah, I, you know, he's not as explicit on all of this that people can't, reasonable people can't disagree on it. But uh, he does, he's very clear, you know, that he expects that the resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of a general resurrection. And then oh, a trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised, etc. And Christ will come in the clouds and, uh, you know, you'll have the left behind and all of, all of the rest of this. Uh, so I think he wasn't worrying about, will we need to observe the details of the law? The, for him, the Messiah had already come to a degree. Now, there's a dual coming, if you like, and you're in between. But, um, but you know, they, he wasn't expecting, you see, for the people at Qumran, I think they expected life would go on on earth. And for them, it was therefore important that you be free to observe the Torah in all its detail. And I think for many of the rabbis later on, this would also be true. But I don't think it was true for Paul. I don't think Paul was worrying about that at all. So it was a question that he would not have raised, I think. And actually, you know, um, now before the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, in Daniel and the Enoch books, you very, very little about a Messiah at all. By 4th Ezra and 2nd Baruch at the end of the first century, you have a lot about the Messiah. And in 4th Ezra, he gets to reign for 400 years. But there's nothing said about to what degree they'll keep the Torah. I think they assumed that they would. This is, you know, how you live properly. But you see, this wasn't an issue for Paul because he was expecting life to go on that way. Right. I think. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the other big text I think of is Psalms of Solomon, right? Where you certainly have this heightened righteousness in the era of the Messiah, but but you don't have Torah, <laughs> which is, it's not, it's just not mentioned in that passage. It's not mentioned, yeah. You know, it, that, that is one case where I'd be inclined to think it's probably assumed. Sure. But, but at the same time, you know, I don't like to, to base arguments on that which is assumed but not mentioned. Right. <laughs> it's it's not, the, not the most convincing argument. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think just the broad sweep, I mean, I even think of the prophets, right? You know, the Torah in the new covenant is written on the heart, you know? So it is, it's, it's something that is um, still there, right? For sure. But it is serving a different function than what the people at 4QMM 
you know, the writers of 4QMT would would assume, right? It is it is not that we are in the Messianic era, you know, all of a sudden we can obey Torah in all the minutia in all the right way, <laughs> right? Um, but there Anything is... Anything for Paul, I think it's uh, in the Messianic age, we can see what's important. Right, right. Well, I think that is the... Um, that's the big difference. So, so one last question re- really quick here. So the title of your book is The Invention of Judaism. Um, so you are dealing with Judaism. And, and we actually talked to Jason Staples, right, who has worked on Israel. Yes. yes. Right? Um, and I actually got to read his book early on his Paul Israel book. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you think Paul is redefining Israel, or is he, right? Um, and does he do the same for Judaism? So, you know, if if Judaism is invented by, you know, um, loyalty to Torah, right? Um, what what does that say about Paul, who who doesn't share that same perspective? And th- does that make sense? You see, I think uh, when I they titled The Invention of Judaism. Actually, Jonathan Adler now has a very similar title. I think it was about the origin of Judaism. But what we both meant is Judaism, as it would be commonly understood later on, very Torah-centric. Right. And But that, my argument was, was essentially invented in the Hasmonean period. You know, that the script for it was laid out by Ezra, but it was really only in the Hasmonean period that they picked that up and ran with it. Now, Paul definitely steps away from that. I think Paul takes it for granted that, again, I don't think he says this, uh, but and I haven't really checked it out, but I think Paul would probably say that Judaism is defined by the Torah of Moses. Hmm. Now, whether how far Paul still considered himself a Jew, a Eudaios, uh, you know, I mean, he did and he didn't, I think. You know, he knew that, that that's where he came from, but it was no longer the most important thing for him. Yeah, I became a Jew so, to win the Jews. Yes, yeah. And he could step away from that too. But when he steps away from Moses, he goes to Abraham. And that's, you know... If you think of these as concentric circles, Abraham is the wider, more inclusive one. But as Joshua Garraway argued in his book, you know, Abraham is still biblical. It's still in the genealogy of Israel. Maybe he's pre-Israel, but it's it's not even like going to Enoch or Noah. You know, it's very much in, uh, it is ethnic. In other words, it's a, it's a broader ethnos, but but it's still um, it's still in that kind of particular stream of tradition. It's not universal humanity, hmm. you know, as I think Daniel Boyarin thought Paul was doing. You know that Paul, uh, but whatever Paul meant by in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew. Um, you know, he didn't mean there are no distinctions in the end of the day. That there is seed of Abraham is still distinct. It's a bigger tent, but it's still a tent. 
Yeah, that is that is very helpful. And I think that obviously is, you know, um, his interpretation of Torah, right? I mean, that is <laughs> that is how he is upholding it over against his adversaries. Um, yeah, this is great. Th- thank you very much for, for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Um, so that's all we have time for in this episode of the Biblical Languages Podcast. Thank you again for joining us. Pleasure, Kevin. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who have taken the time to listen to the Biblical Languages Podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Languages Podcast brought to you by Biblingo. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. You can also follow Biblingo on social media to discuss the episode with us and other listeners. And don't forget to visit biblingo.org to start your 10-day free trial of Biblingo.